welcome to Post-Exertional Mayonnaise, a podcast about living with ME and chronic illness, creativity and making meaning. I'm Daniel, next week we'll be back with Dov, um, but just to give you a bit of an introduction to this episode, um, I'm joined by Sarah Boothby, whose daughter Maeve Owen died in 2021. Maeve wrote a book, um, a novel called The Alchemists, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about Maeve's writing, and then uh Sarah's going to read from the book um in excerpts uh because it was a long long episode we've split it into two so after this one finishes where we talk about Maeve in a writing um you can go straight on and listen to the second episode which uh which which is Sarah reading and we have a little bit of a discussion uh, about some of the excerpts so um I hope you really enjoy it and uh yeah do get in touch Hello and welcome to Post-Exertional Mayonnaise. Um, we're joined today by Sarah Boothby. Uh, Sarah's daughter Maeve uh, died in 2021, um, but we're going to focus today on Maeve's writing. Um, Maeve wrote a novel and had plans for a series of novels um, uh, to, to come, really, before before she died. So um, thank you for joining us today, Sarah, and it's, it's, it's lovely to have you, and it'll be great to just explore some of Maeve's writing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Maeve and her writing? And then we've got an audio clip to play as well. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me, Dan. It's... Um... It's really lovely to have this opportunity in the context of a lot of really horrible stuff. It's really, really great to be able to think about her and who she was rather than how she died. Um, Mm. So it took a long time for her to recognise that she was a writer and it really came because of being being ill and being kind of (laughs) she used to make a great joke about in you know earlier on about playing around with words we'd always played around with words and so she played around with the concept of invalid and invalid which I'm sure lots of people have done right with chronic illness because Mm. the older older form of words is you know the invalid and how she felt as a young woman who you know she managed to get through school she got to the end of her kind of state-maintained compulsory education before she got a diagnosis. She was ill before that, but she did manage to get through school. And she was a she was a very high achiever academically. She was a natural, a natural scholar and a really great writer, but she didn't think of herself as a writer because just about everything she'd had to write was for school. And it's always a particular mm. form of writing which she didn't enjoy. I mean, who does write? like writing for examples horrible but she did she was she was lucky enough to for both GCSE and A level no she didn't do she didn't write at A level it was just at GCSE she did the Welsh board and the Welsh board offer um a creative writing um paper if you opt for it and I think I've got that wrong because she was also very independent, right? So, so she she knew what she was learning better than her teachers did, and I never ever had to nag her to do her homework. Like never ever. If anything, it was the other way around. I would have to say, "Well, you're going to have to stop now because it's eight o'clock." <laughs> and 
Mm-hmm. You'll be going to bed in about an hour. So stop. Have some wind down time. And we we developed a kind of family habit of watching some kind of you know something that we could binge on for for weeks, months, even you know. So we'd watch one episode of The Wire or something like that. And that would be the wind down, and then she she'd go off to bed. And she was ill by this stage, but we didn't know what it was. Nobody else knew either. So um, in that writing, she wrote this beautiful essay, which was creative writing about uh, anorexia. But she wouldn't tell me anything about it at all. I wasn't invited to read any drafts, unlike all the other essays. But it's like, have I said what I need to say? Please have a look at it. This one was all hers. And when I went to the, um, the parents' evening, kind of halfway through the GCSE, the English teacher said, oh, Maeve, you know, they would always do this. Said, oh, she's such, oh, she can do, she's so great. I love having her in my class. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's nice for you, the teacher. It's not so nice for her because nobody else in the class gets her. And they all think she's a nerd, which she was, right? Like, fair enough, she was a nerd. She knew the syllabus, so they would ask her questions rather than the teachers because she was one of them and she knew the answers. But it's like, well, who's she going to ask? I mean, who does she get to? <laughs> so this English teacher, she was um, only there temporarily uh, covering for someone's maternity leave. And she said, so now the thing about Maeve's, Maeve's creative writing is that she's gone over the word length, which makes it an A. It should be an A star. And I can see why she's gone over the word length, but I have to give her the A because she's got to, and it's like, that's just typical, isn't it? It's like, you know, you've got an A star student, but you've got to give them an A because there's a rule that says. Mm. <laughs> so then after that, I was allowed to read it. I go, no, maybe you didn't tell me anything about this. You know, I have to read all your other things on like, she used to hate writing the media essays. And I, okay, well, can I, am I allowed to read this thing? And she was, oh, yeah, right then. And it was absolutely fantastic. And it was exactly the same with this first draft of the of the novel, is that I, I might cry, Dan, so just excuse me because grief is horrible. Yeah. But she wouldn't she wouldn't let anybody read it because it wasn't finished. <laughs> and then in when she knew that she had no options left and um, she asked me to send send the draft that she'd written on this app that I had no idea how to use, I'd never seen it before, to somebody that she'd met online who didn't know that she was ill, who was a professor of English in New York, right? So when Mm -hmm. Maeve was younger, she kind of idolised America. You know, she used to have a a picture of of the map on the wall with all of the states outlined she, you know, like most teenage girls, she liked to dress up and, and had loads of kind of very stylish photographs that were just street photos of street fashion from New York. So for her to have made this friend was like, oh, I didn't know you'd done that. But I can see who, you know, knowing the person that you are, how, how, what that would mean to you. So it's like, yeah, I will try and figure out how to download the document into something that I can send by email to this person whose address you've got. And I sent it, and within a couple of weeks, it came back with this kind of incredibly glowing review, how wonderful it was and how it was ready for publication now. And so, right, just to get back to this is made, knowing she's got a few weeks left, 
I mean, really just a few weeks left. And for her to get that recognition from somebody who had no idea that she was ill, not, not a clue, was it just made her cry. You know, it's like my life has got more meaning to it. And this mm. horrible condition that has been so badly neglected is going to steal my life from me. And um, and when I told her, um, you know, it took me a while to it took me a while to to let this professor, Richard, <laughs> know that Maeve died, and she had no idea. She had no idea that Maeve was ill. Um, and we had a few conversations about the text, and she was very encouraging about getting it published. So. I I read it and I didn't want to while Maeve was dying and I I kept putting off the next chapter because I didn't want it to end because when it ended that would just take us all a step closer to something that I couldn't stop but didn't want to happen and and um, I thought it I, it was just not only did I not want this to get to the end of it because it meant the end in more ways than one, but because it was so good. <laughs> I wanted to savour it all. You know, I, re I read slowly anyway, and I just could not believe how well-crafted it was. Every sentence was beautiful, and I couldn't understand how she'd done it, because she hadn't had... I knew that she'd, she'd started on the draft, because we talked about the characters and we talked about the plot over a long period of time. And um, and I I'd said at one point you're going to have to just start writing because you I know that you've already got too much from everything that you've to told me and even though these characters are to be developed into a series so she was the generation that grew up on Harry Potter and so J.K. Rowling's method was mm. probably a bit of a template for her you know like plan the books in advance and then write them um, and she she for those listening to this, who are also Harry Potter aficionados, she was a Ravenclaw, okay, so she she, you know, it's the heroic thing is to be a Gryffindor, but she knew she was a Ravenclaw. A lot of her friends were Hufflepuffs <laughs> um, because they were kind and gentle and she needed that especially towards the end of her life because she had such a fierce intellect. You know, she really I mean, maybe we should hear the clip because I think it comes through in the clip. Like, this is this is from a, a recording that I made with her completely spontaneously one year. In fact, it was 2017 because it was the um, 100 years of women getting the right to vote that year. And um, and I'd, I thought it would be good. I've always celebrated International Women's Day as... You know, I prefer to celebrate that to Christmas, for example. It's like this is a day that I know what I'm celebrating, <laughs> whereas Christmas, I can mm -hmm. celebrate the days getting longer. But otherwise, I'm not sure what I'm doing, um, apart from things that I don't want to do. So, well, you know, the consumerism, I'm, I'm not interested. So so uh, we made this recording, and I think let's give it a try. Let's hope that the tech works and, and give it a try. Yeah. I think feminism is about being independent. Ultimately, I think it's about women being independent of men financially, materially, um, 
psychologically. psychologically, emotionally, you know, not being dependent on male approval. Yeah. To have a feeling of self worth or purpose, not being dependent on men to have meaning in your life. Do you know, can you remember the first time that you thought, uh, I'm probably a feminist? Do you remember the first time you heard the word feminism? No. No. No, I don't either. Do you think you've always been a feminist, though? Or do you think that you maybe have become one? Um, I think I have always wanted to be a feminist. Oh, yeah. I think there have always been ways in which I have unconsciously been a feminist. Um, especially growing up with you, because you demonstrated, without making a big deal of it, that that women can do perfectly well without men, that you don't need a man to paint the living room or <laughs> or do, nice or do the accounts though. like sure it's nice but it's not it's not necessary yeah. and I guess kind of make the idea of being ladylike just a kind of nonsense you know that it that it's not about are you trying to tell me that I'm not ladylike? I think I am trying to tell you that you're not ladylike because <laughs> what about because compliment? because ladies go nim 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 and you you do many things but you do not go nim right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't I? That's interesting. You know, like do I go gallopy gallopy? Well, then? it used to be. It used to. Be <laughs> <laughs> Down no, into the ditch. Yeah. <laughs> no, you used to. You used to go it, when when I was little buying presents for you was really difficult because it was like my mum doesn't like cosmetics and jewellery <laughs> you know she doesn't want smelly things or pink things actually that's not strictly or... true it's just that I'm very 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 discerning yeah <laughs> right okay that's a big help to a nine-year-old yeah, <laughs> so it it was like yeah I guess because you didn't do the girly lady thing that it just I guess the it was like nobody at home is expecting me to behave in that way so the external expectations you know the cultural social expectations that that's how you behave were easier to shake off because because it was only coming from out there and you know out there <laughs> doesn't have the best track record so yeah, I don't know. When did you first know you were a feminist? Well, I didn't even know there was such a thing as feminism for a long time. Um, which is partly why I was asking you, because I wondered if maybe feminism has become more of a word that is in use, you know. So, I don't know. I mean, ironically for me, I kind of grew up with the second wave, 70s. You know, I, can't even, I don't even know which wave was which. First it, wave was the suffragettes. Okay. Retrospectively was, named the yeah. first wave. Yeah. Second wave was the seventies. Now apparently we're in the third wave. Oh good. I'm very glad to hear that we're in another wave. Are you? Well the third wave feminism seems to consist of T shirts and trans. <laughs> so. Well, T shirts are right, they're quite a good garment, you know, easy to wash. 
No, I mean T-shirts that say, this is what a feminist looks you like. You mean Theresa May calling <sighs> herself a feminist? Well, it's that commercialisation thing, isn't it? Oh, feminism goes mainstream, we can make a profit from it and just reduce it to... I mean, I think feminism, the kind of emerging social definition of feminism is not... I don't know, I guess it depends who you talk to, but just like this idea that Equality and equivalence are not the same thing. Yeah, so it must have been really poignant for you listening back to that and having that just little lovely snippet of Maeve to hear. And But for us, I suppose it, it really um, highlights how, how sharp a mind she had and how she really thought quite deeply about things. Um, yeah and and obviously she thought quite deeply about her writing and um was she an avid reader herself because it feels like she's just absorbed an awful lot of information from wherever yeah yeah so i mean before she could read <laughs> it was a big thing so like any any parent will remember the early years of being woken up before you're ready, right? Like, <laughs> the thing that I most longed for was to be able to wake up in my own time. You know, when is the day going to come? It took six <laughs> years before I was allowed to wake up in my own time. <laughs> and that was probably because by then she had learned to read for herself. But what happened from the time, you know, from the minute she could get out of bed by herself, she would grab a book and bring it to me and wake me up to read her first thing in the morning. That was, <laughs> that's how much she liked books and reading. And um, there's a lovely bit um, in the novel about, about this house that she invented where, where there's a library and all of the books are, all of the bookcases are designed so that the sun will not bleach the spines because that was always her her concern. You know, I mean, books were her thing. They were like objects as well as as the thing that has what she wants in life in it, <laughs> um, mm. which is how she met the American professors. That what during the during the pandemic lockdowns, when people were giving interviews over video, they liked to put themselves in front of a bookcase. Um, as some kind mm. of symbolic representation of how expert they were. And and so yeah. she and a friend that she'd met at college, who she reconnected with years later online. Um they hadn't they hadn't been friends at, in college at all. Um but that uh, they together, who was also another avid reader with similar political kind of tendencies. Um and also they also had in common. This was the first friend Maeve ever had who whose parents were separated. So that was I think that was quite a big relief for her to have somebody who would understand the tension of having these parents who just do not see eye to eye. And we really don't, you know. I mean it's a good thing. If anyone's ever worried about getting divorced, all I can say is do not stay married for the sake of the children because it's not for the sake of the children. Mm. <laughs> they will be better off if you separate. If you just don't understand each other, if you speak different languages, got different values, 
it's just miserable it, for all of you. So don't bother. It's fine being a single parent. It's not. It's really hard being a parent at all. But it's hard being a single parent because people do, you do get stigmatized. But if you've got good relationships with your children, it doesn't really matter. The stigma is irrelevant because it doesn't belong with you. It belongs with the people who like to do the stigmatizing and not with you. And um, and this friend and she set up this <laughs> called Bethan, shout out to Bethan, because it's still there. Um, shelf absorption, as in self-absorption, more playing with words. And uh, and that's how they met this professor, because people were on their computers, and this professor who's called, I'm going to say it, I'll get it wrong, so I won't say it, I won't say it, but um, uh, I'm really bad at names. Um, she she discovered them and thought this was wonderful because she's you know she's in university she's teaching so she's used to being around young people and young people's ideas and to have these two young women on the other side of the Atlantic having a little play around inviting people to to describe their favorite books and why they were their favorite books you know Bethan did most of the work and it gave Maeve an opportunity to be in the world you know and for lots of people with ME, those pandemic lockdowns were like, at last, the rest of the world is living like we do. At last, the world mm. is coming to us. And and it was, it was the case. That was the only kind of venturing out that she managed to do from, well, unless it was for a medical appointment. And they were pointless, you know, mm. save all your energy to go for a medical appointment, which would just send you home feeling worse with nothing at all. Mm. Um, that, that was her... That was her only outing from 2016, you know, through the, through the internet. Thankfully, there is the internet. Um, yeah, it is poignant to hear her voice, but it's also lovely for me to hear her voice because it's so lively, and she was so lively, even. Even when she was dying, she was lively. I don't know if you've ever been with someone who's dying, but it is a there's a very very big difference between the person when they're alive and when they're not. And mm. she was still making terrible jokes about anti-emetics, which is anti-sickness for those who don't know. Um, kind of until she couldn't speak anymore, you know. She could hardly speak. She was speaking in a whisper, but her her wit and her intelligence never left her. So that I asked her towards the end, did you manage to rest your mind? Because that was all that was the only place that the energy was being spent. And mm. I couldn't I couldn't I still don't understand. You know, I wish I wish I hope that medicine will get its act together and do the research that's needed because how can you continue to deteriorate like that? How can you? I mean, she she was being deprived of life-saving treatment that would have been given to somebody else. That much I'm completely confident about because of her diagnosis. But that doesn't explain how aggressive ME can get to me. It, it really, really doesn't. And um, and her her that that because. We don't have photographs because who wants to be photographed when they're not feeling very well? Like, you know, mm. I don't. No, it's true. I mean, I'm not very good at photographs anyway. But yeah, would you like to have your photo? No, don't take a photo. And I did ask her for some photographs so that I could show people as evidence. But I'm not putting them out there when she didn't want to be remembered for being ill. 
for those last images. I'm very grateful to the families that have done that because they're very graphic representations of how poorly people become. But Maeve did not want to be remembered for being in, so this is my effort to honour her mm. for who she was and not what she was turned into by an illness. Mm. And, and and I guess the the book will be a, a legacy of sorts for her, and and I think for you to feel that sense of closeness with with who she, who she was as well. And um, do you want to tell us a bit about the book? and and the the plot and the story and and i know you we, we were going to read from it as well so um i'll, I'll let you kind of yeah. like, uh, kind of guide that <laughs> so dan you told me that you don't really read fiction any longer because it's only for sleep if this sends you to sleep i didn't mean it quite like that I, I would love no i would love to i would love to read fiction and it's just that for me um my tiredness gets the better of me and and um i get i, I struggle to keep, <laughs> I keep i struggle to keep i struggle to keep track of when there's lots and lots of characters and who's who and then where the plot's going and then my brain just struggles to absorb all the information so it's it's amazing that i i did actually try writing a novel uh or a book um early on in my illness because i had the time and i had more brain energy and uh, it's probably like a third completed but i've never gone back to it because uh it's just it, it was just um it was just too much the writing and and i've noticed that because I, I blogged quite a lot when i first got ill as well and and for me that um i've noticed now when i write my sharpness isn't there in the same way so yeah so when i'm reading I, I, uh even audiobooks I, i'll i'll listen to an audiobook and then um if it's fiction I, i'll i might i might fall asleep but then i'll get lost in the story and then i've got to go back and find out where i was again and things like that so for me i still mm. like reading and it's audiobooks but it's non-fiction because you can listen to half a chapter of something and then pick it up a bit later and they might start talking about something else in the same kind of vein but it, it I, I haven't kind of lost anything by of the of a plot of something so that's why yeah i struggle with um reading fiction not that i wouldn't want to because um and and i'm sure if as and when May's book comes back, I, I will probably make a concerted effort to read it because I've re read some of the excerpts now that we're going to read. And, and yeah, I, I got drawn in really quickly in just the first sort of half a chapter yeah. or, or introduction of it. So um, maybe, maybe it's the books that I'm trying to read. Maybe I'm not reading good quality enough, trying to read good quality enough books. But um, yeah, um, do, do you want to do you want to start? And I've got I've got a bit of um. I've got it here so I can follow but do, do you, I know we were going to sort of maybe discuss some of the bits some of the things that maybe have come from although maybe wasn't writing about Emmy there's there's certainly reflections of her experience within the book is is that right it was really difficult to choose which bits which you know because it's it's so well crafted like her teacher said you know she couldn't cut it for length for her GCSE and this novel taking something out decontextualizes it from what is beautifully crafted you know it's like putting you pull a string out and it's like well I've got mm. the string but the, but the fabric of the story is so well woven and the characters so carefully introduced I mean I just think she was she was yeah she was practicing for 
being a toddler and bringing books to be read in bed first thing in the morning you know just soaking it all up how do you how do you put a story together and of course she's half Irish so the gift of the Blarney is definitely a gift and um and she was also you know off the scale when it came to aptitude tests for verbal reasoning so her facility with words and languages also really good so that that and I'm saying all of this because I do want to encourage people through your podcast who've got ME or living with someone who's got ME to use their creativity as as the escape Mm. from the illness because it is the best escape from the illness in my experience observing somebody from the outside if you dwell on the symptoms too much you feel terrible so you have to stop dwelling on the symptoms and you have to put your mind somewhere else but how do you do that when you're feeling terrible already? And this this way, you know, this way of working with the imagination and creativity, you do have to draw on who you are. You can't you can't pretend to be somebody that you're not. And so, in, in Maeve's case, it took her a long time to accept that writing was her medium. She was a singer to begin with, um, which is again is great for a writer because the sound and the feel and the rhythm of the words is is part of where her talent lies and and so it's a lovely read because of its rhythm which might help you go to sleep it might also engage you in the same way that rhythms will you know it's like once you're into a rhythm you kind of the rhythm keeps you going and and um and also her use of imagery she she'd been um we she grew up on Dartmoor um and the book is set on Dartmoor so she drew on childhood experiences which most writers do like they do every every piece of writing that I've ever read once you've done make a bit of an investigation of the author, you go, oh, this is autobiographical. These are just metaphors mm. that have been employed. But, but what she did, so that interview about, um, you know, what did she think she was a feminist or not, and her surprise that I would even ask, is, is, um, is also in the book. Um, and, and she set it in the 1920s because she didn't know anything about it and she had the kind of mind that has to be fed. You know, she needed to nourish her mind and so she wanted to set it in a time that she didn't know anything about and listen to a lot of audio books written in the 1920s or set in the 1920s to adopt some of the voice and some of the the kind of figures of speech from the 1920s slightly later in cases but she she was very she was such a good scholar you know she was very diligent and very detailed about her approach so you know when you say in her approach when you say about having started writing and having and then feeling that you're not so sharp and then coming back to to fiction not being able to keep track of characters I think that's normal for everybody right like keeping track of a huge cast of characters is tricky so what Mm -hmm. she did was break everything down into into um a bit like she would be prepping for an exam She'd have cue cards, and on the card was the briefest outline of either the time or the place, the date or the character, um, and all of that was colour coded, you know, very systematic. So lots of work went into this for years, um, and by the time I said to her, "You're going to have to start writing because you've got too much already," I know from <laughs> what you've told me, you've got too much already. She only had 20 minutes on a good day to do anything in. 
But I imagine, right. and this is just me guessing, is that what she was doing the rest of the time when she was trying to rest and trying to get, mm. you know, like take the attention away from the symptoms, she tried all the meditation apps like everybody does. She tried the Nidri yoga. You know, everybody that I know who's got ME wants to be well and they do everything they can to be well. But sometimes the only wellness comes from not thinking about it. And I think she was, I think she was, um, phrasing in those times so that by the time she was she knew that she could do had enough to actually get on to she wrote it on an ipad on this app like i said i don't understand where she got it from how it worked <laughs> um, and it was a bit of a struggle to convert it into a pdf and then convert it into something that i can edit on um she she her fingers knew already what her the phrasing she knew what she was going to write before she started to write it I'm not that kind of writer for me I just like bash out a whole load of ideas because I've got I've got horribly good health you know it's just unfair I just bash stuff out and then I go back and work on it she never had a chance to go back and work on it which is like I'm going to read you a bit in a minute because it is really impressive to be able to craft such mm. well structured sentences straight off I don't think that's, I think that's ME working, you know, making you into something that you weren't, but then you kind of tap into who you are, who you want to be, and and to escape, escape from the symptoms, even if it is only for 20 minutes on a good day, at least that escape is there, and the prospect of being able to escape is there. Mm. And from what I've read from people who are, who survived the very severe for longer than Maeve did. And Maeve would have survived for a lot longer if she'd been treated. There is no question about that, which is why there's an inquest. Mm. But she she never could, I mean, with AI, it's very different now already, but she could never find a voice-activated software that would do it. And she didn't have the voice to to activate her phone, which is how she, she would call me. It would be through voice activation if she needed me once she became bedbound, um, and that didn't last forever. But the, but the things that I've read from people who have survived, they, they say something similar, is that you, you have to make a space in your mind, like a meditation, where you want mm. to go and take yourself there. Mm. Not in the kind of guided meditations where you end up finding all sorts of stuff from your unconscious that you wish you didn't have to encounter but somewhere that you really do want to go and for me it was this book and these characters she loved these characters and when you read them you can tell how much each of them meant you know they are fully rounded people um and growing up on Dartmoor she'd been involved with theatre so she'd learned to she learned to be in a play and write a play from a very young age which is quite unusual, but it was a community theatre that encouraged young people to participate. And it was it was lovely, all original work. So so that also gave her a kind of confidence that lots of people don't have the privilege of. Um, mm. So shall I shall I try and read a bit? Never done yeah. this before, that's yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and the other thing just to say before I do get stuck in is that I have sent you the the cast of characters. So for those people mm. who do struggle, then hopefully there'll be a way that you can make that available. I don't know how technically for other people to we know who the people website, are that are in the, 
Yeah, mm. that's a good idea, I think. Um, okay, so like I said, it was really hard to <laughs> extract. And um, what I've chosen to start with, and I think you, for time, you must just interrupt me when it's when it's too much, um, is from chapter one, because chapter one is like any good piece of writing. It, it establishes what's going to come next. Um, and she organised it as much as I saw her process. She she was very fastidious on detail. It's an historical novel set in the 1920s. And she, to take herself into the world of the 1920s, she did a lot of research while she was well enough to do it and with some help um, of, of uh, from the local history society, helped her with information. Um, and she organised it around dates from the actual year so this this first chapter is wow. starts one saturday the 25th of march and we're in 1922 but she will tell you that um and then she's got a working title for this chapter called an unusual occurrence the post did not come as anyone who has been unfortunate enough to experience such an event will know an absent post is keenly felt. It being the 26th of March, many of the villagers laughed that the postman, having spent the previous week reminding each household that summertime would begin that Sunday, had at last forgotten and overslept himself. However, once the news had reached Mrs. Crawsley that her husband had made no deliveries that morning, and she had assured her neighbours that she had seen Mr. Crawley off at the usual hour in accordance with British summertime, those smiles became somewhat anxious, and people began to ask what could have befallen their postman, and some feared the worst. Mm-hmm. 